Uh, welcome to you, and thank you for coming to this talk. Uh, my name is Margot Light, and it gives me particular pleasure to chair this talk, uh, because I've known and admired Angus uh, for very many years. Uh, he's highly qualified to talk about Russia. He was a translator and an analyst for the BBC monitoring service. He was Moscow correspondent for the Sunday Times in the mid-1980s, and he was BBC correspondent in the Yeltsin years. He's authored two previous books on Russia, uh, The Second Russian Revolution and Pravda, Inside the Soviet Press Machine. But what makes him supremely qualified to talk about Putin's Russia is that he worked for three years as an advisor to Dmitry Peskov, President Putin's press secretary. This gave him unique access to the inner sanctum of the Kremlin. To this is added the work that he's just done as chief consultant on a four-part BBC TV documentary series called Putin, Russia and the West, made by Norma Percy and the team at Brook Lapping, which begins on the 19th of January on the BBC. Ladies and gentlemen, I have much pleasure in giving you Angus Roxborough. Margot, thank you very much for that kind introduction, and thank you to the LSE for the invitation to speak here. It's a great privilege to be here. Um, I wanted to, to start just by telling you a little bit about how uh, it, it came about that I uh, wrote uh, this book. Um, two years ago, I was asked to join uh, a team working on a new BBC documentary series that Margot just mentioned. I was the consultant on the series, uh, and the book is in some ways an offshoot uh, from that work. They've got different titles. The TV series is called Putin, Russia and the West. Uh, the book is called The Strong Man. And the different titles, I think, illustrate the, the different approaches that they have. Uh, the television series focuses mainly on uh, diplomacy, Putin's relations with the West, whereas in the, in the book I have that, but I also look um, in some detail at um, internal uh, political changes under Putin as well. It's worth explaining, I think, how we approached the TV series. Our aim was to get um, first-hand stories, personal eyewitness accounts, from as many of the top players in Russia and in America, France, Germany, and so on, um, as we could, and to build up from their memories a sort of history of the last 12 years. A huge amount of research was involved so that we could pinpoint uh, the main turning points and then get the different participants to tell uh, the, the story from their point of view. We did pretty well. We got about 100 interviewees uh, altogether, some of them we interviewed several times, right up to the top level, apart from Putin himself. Um, we thought we were going to get him, but failed at the last hurdle. Anyway, hopefully by doing that, we got a fairly rounded picture. Uh, and in the book, I try to relate events through the eyes of the people we spoke to. I think that's an important thing to do generally in international relations. Um, to try to see things through the eyes of your adversary. Too often the Russians, I think, fail to see why the Americans are concerned by their behavior. And conversely, the Americans, we in the West, uh, too often fail to see why the Russians are concerned by our actions or policies. 
So what I try to do is not just to present each side's moves and illustrate the standoff that everybody knows exists, but to try to understand why the Russians and the Americans so often talked past each other and misunderstood each other and, I think, failed to capitalize on what was actually a very auspicious moment for international relations at the beginning of the 21st century. The big question is, did the West actually throw away chances to bring Russia in from the cold? And did Western attitudes towards Russia actually help to make worse the anti-democratic tendencies that we're all now so worried about in Putin's Russia? Just before I get into the, the, the body of my, my talk, a little preface. Um, over the 40-odd years that I've been studying Russian, it's occurred to me that Russia has a, a very intense perhaps unique way of regarding itself. All nations are patriotic to some extent or another, but nowhere, nowhere I think, indulges in the kind of navel-gazing that preoccupies Russians and has done for centuries. We in Britain, or America, are pretty self-confident. We take our history and our role in the world pretty much for granted. We would never refer to Mother England the way Russians think of Mother Russia. If you think of the great English novels of the 19th century, they were about society, relationships, love, class, whatever. But Russian novels are always agonizing over the big questions. Where are we going? What is our destiny? Who are we as Russians? That's not patriotism. That's a national obsession. And Russians to this day, maybe even more so after the turmoil and upheaval of the last century, are obsessed with their place in the world, in history, Russia's mission, Russia's destiny. I say all that because I think it's a useful backdrop to the events of the last 10 or 20 years. I think it's something that should always be kept in mind, and I think it's what the American leaders of the last couple of decades have consistently ignored. I don't think you can understand the Putin years without first understanding the upheaval that Russia endured under Boris Yeltsin. I would contend that at least a measure of that upheaval and the humiliation that many Russians felt was due to inept Western policies. There was an assumption among American policymakers under Bill Clinton, whose presidency coincided with most of the Yeltsin years, that Russians were basically just Americans who were struggling to get out of a communist skin. If you pulled away the communism, underneath you would get little Americans, or even better, little pro-Americans who were willing to be led by Washington. The American scholar Stephen Cohen wrote this, the received wisdom in the US was that since the end of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia has been a nation ready, willing, and able to be transformed into some sort of replica of America. Um, Bill Clinton's Russia advisor was a woman called Toby Gatti. She prepared the first aid package to Russia in the 1990s, and she now also admits that they got it wrong. She wrote, perhaps we in the US had a very narrow view of Soviet society, and we overestimated the Russians' desire to live by our rules. We started with the assumption that the transformation would be quick and the chaos, which incidentally was not seen as chaos but as a transitional period, would soon be replaced by normal life. I think that that led to a number of policies that, taken together, caused a great deal of hardship and humiliation 
of a people who, as I said before, have a very acute sense of their own place in the world. Three things happened, I think, in Russia as it threw off communism in 1991 and began to build a capitalist democratic system. First of all, there was the liberalization of prices, the introduction of a free market, privatization of state industries. This was overseen by radical young reformers, people like uh, Yegor Gaidar, um, Anatoly Chubais. They'd seen shock therapy, the instant introduction of, of uh, capitalism, worked pretty well in places like Poland, and they wanted to do the same in Russia. But in Russia, the conditions were very different, and the result was, on the one hand, the impoverishment of millions of people. Many ended up out of work. Wages and pensions weren't paid. They were unable to afford the new prices in the shops. <clears throat> and the other result was the rise of the so-called oligarchs, businessmen who snapped up state resources, especially oil fields, gas fields, and so on, for next to nothing and quickly turned themselves into billionaires. The second thing that happened was that there was a distinct impression, I certainly had the impression living in, in Russia at the time, that all of this was somehow orchestrated by the USA. The Russian reformers were eagerly advised by American, aided by American advisors. There were men in sharp suits crawling all over the Kremlin and government offices in those days. I remember seeing them selling off state-owned trucks at an auction in Nizhny Novgorod. Western companies rushed in. For them, this was, this was a bounty, capitalism in the world's biggest country, a huge new market for their products. Shops filled up with imported goods. Um, I remember watching television in those days when, when uh, they had the first Western adverts for these goods, many of them produced for some reason by Procter & Gamble, uh, things like pampers and head and shoulders and so on. And all the adverts ended with the phrase produced by Procter & Gamble, but in Russian I thought it sounded very funny, it was Produkt Kampanyi Procter & Gamble. At the end, and it, this sort of rang out at the end of every advert like a sort of mantra, uh, almost a, a political slogan to replace Long Live the Communist Party. At the same time, domestic foodstuffs and goods virtually vanished from the stores. And to cap it all, in the 1990s, Russia ended up receiving humanitarian aid, food shipments from the West, proud Russia receiving humanitarian aid. So you had upheaval in the economy, the impression that it was all driven by the Americans, and then thirdly, at the same time, despite all of that, and despite all the nice words about bringing Russia into the Western world, <coughs> Moscow was in fact almost entirely ignored when it came to global decision-making. Uh, Yeltsin, it's true, was invited to attend the G7 meetings, but he, he wasn't a, a, a decision-maker with them. The last straw was the bombing of Serbia, Milosevic's Serbia, in 1999 um, against Russia's objections. Russia was simply ignored um, over the bombing of Serbia. And Yeltsin felt angry and humiliated by that, and so did Putin. And Putin, to this day, constantly refers to the bombing of Serbia back in 1999 as an example of Russia's humiliation. So when Putin came to power 
in 2000. He had a big mess to clean up. Not only was he taking over from a chronically sick, periodically drunken president, but he inherited an economy in a mess, wages not being paid, millions on the breadline, oligarchs using their billions to fight out their political and personal battles on privatized television stations, and Russia's voice was ignored in the world. Putin set out to change all of that, and he was cheered by most Russians in those efforts. And what we, I think, easily forget, because of everything that's happened since, is that at the time he was also cheered in the West. Foreign leaders rushed to see Putin when he became president. Even before he was officially elected president, Tony Blair was the first Western leader who went to St. Petersburg um, hoping to make the United Kingdom Russia's partner of choice in Europe. They went to the opera with their wives. Um, Putin showed him around the city. Controversially, Putin chose to, uh, sorry, Blair chose to overlook the ruthless war in Chechnya that Putin was waging at that time. Another early visitor was George Robertson, the General Secretary of NATO. Robertson told us in, in an interview how impressed he was by Putin's apparently sincere desire to put the past behind him and join Europe. He even asked Robertson when they would invite Russia to join NATO, to which Robertson rather curtly replied that NATO didn't invite countries to join, you had to apply to join and then go through a process and prove that you were suitable. Putin was somewhat deflated by this apparently, especially by the idea of having to wait in line with lots of smaller East European countries before they would be considered for membership. The terrorist attacks of 9-11, September in New York and Washington, were a major factor in bringing Russia closer to the Americans. Putin was the first leader to call Bush. He instantly called off naval maneuvers in the Pacific, which might distract the Americans. And he appears to have had no doubts about offering cooperation uh, in the American intervention in Afghanistan. Indeed, he overruled his, the, the hardliners in, in his uh, leadership who were very much against that. Uh, one of them, the defense minister, Sergei Ivanov, said openly that he opposed the idea of American military bases in Central Asia. Uh, he told us that um, the, 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 the fears that the hardliners had was that the Americans would use this to gain a foothold in the region, to effect regime change, uh, spread democracy, and so on. And he believes that actually that's what happened. But Putin insisted that they should help America. Partly that was out of self-interest, getting the, the Americans to root out terrorists in Afghanistan who might also attack Russia. And part, also it was part of his strategy to woo George Bush and regain respect for Russia. None of this deterred Bush from pursuing what was a major obsession when he came to power, and that was his desire to build a missile defense shield to protect America from rogue states that might eventually acquire nuclear missiles. All the early disagreements between Moscow and Russia at that time were over this. Um, and especially Bush's decision to withdraw from the anti-ballistic mis missile treaty, the ABM treaty, which banned the creation of uh, def uh, missile defenses. In December 2001, Bush did abandon the ABM treaty in the face of Russian objections, but still Putin 
was determined to press ahead with building a relationship. And uh, Colin Powell, who was Bush's Secretary of State, told us a nice story about how he went to Moscow in December 2001 to inform Putin that uh, Washington was going to abandon the ABM Treaty the following day. And Putin leaned forward to him and said, OK, good, now we don't have to talk about that anymore. Let's get busy working on a new strategic framework. And that's what they did. In, uh, over the next month, they uh, worked on a new strategic uh, arms control agreement which uh, Bush and Putin signed in Moscow in May 2002. Then they went off to St. Petersburg. As usual, Putin proud to show off his home city, sightseeing, ballet, and so on. This was the peak of the new relationship between the Americans and the Russians. And again, there's a lovely story uh, which you'll see in episode one of the, of the television programs when they go out. Um, Condoleezza Rice... Uh, and Sergei Ivanov, the defense minister, uh, were at the ballet with Bush and, and, and Putin, but it was the nutcracker, and neither of them felt like watching the nutcracker. And uh, both of them tell us the, the, this story, so it must be true. Um, Ivanov leaned over to Condé Rice and said, listen, do you really want to watch this? I've got something more interesting we, we can do. Have you ever heard of the Eichmann Ballet, an avant-garde choreographer in, in, in St. Petersburg? So they sneaked off to watch the Eichmann Ballet in rehearsal in another part of, of uh, St. Petersburg and then got back to the Marinsky Theatre just before the lights uh, went up um, and uh, they could go off for the next part of the programme with the two presidents. So that was the peak of the relationship. And it wasn't just Putin's uh, diplomatic overtures that pleased the West. His economic reforms did too. He introduced a flat rate income tax, 13%, to encourage people to actually pay rather than avoiding paying. He carried out a land reform, allowing the buying and selling of land in Russia for the first time since the 1917 communist revolution. All of that went down well in the West. So what on earth went wrong? Well, the trouble was that the reforms and the overtures to the West were accompanied by Putin's, the former KGB man's, growing repressions at home. The West was always wary about Putin's past in the KGB, and soon they believed he, they saw him reverting to type. Shortly after coming to power, Putin began to muzzle the national television stations. He effectively took control of NTV, one of the big stations which had been very critical of the Chechen war and which had satirized him ferociously in, in a, a puppet show. Uh, and he effectively took back Channel One, the main Russian television station, which had also been very critical of him. The owners of those two stations, Gusinsky and Berezovsky, both fled abroad. Secondly, Putin began to crack down on the oligarchs, these billionaire businessmen, insisting that they must keep their noses out of politics. He held a meeting with all the top businessmen in the Kremlin, where according to the, the Prime Minister, Mikhail Kasyanov, some of the oligarchs were almost cowering beneath their desks because Putin made it so clear to them that if they didn't obey his instruction to keep out of politics, they would share the fate of Gusinsky and Berezovsky. Of course, one oligarch refused to toe the line. That was Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the oil um, magnate, who ended up in jail 
uh, and recently had his jail term extended purely to keep him out of the political arena. Thirdly, there was the war in Chechnya, of course, which was generally regarded as unbelievably brutal. Tens of thousands of people were killed, cities devastated, human rights violated. Naturally, the, the West was appalled by all of these things, which seemed to contradict everything that Putin said about wanting to belong to the Western world. Now, the key thing here, it seems to me, is that the two sides just began to talk past each other. In fact, it was worse than that. They each began to take steps that threatened or worried the other, causing negative reactions on the other side and pushing them into a spiral of mistrust and misunderstanding. Putin, for example, it seems, had no clue that his domestic policies were the cause of severe concern to the West and actually caused the West to take a more negative or aggressive stance towards Russia. The West, by the same token, had little clue that Putin was genuinely concerned by many Western policies. I'll give you some examples of that. <coughs> I've already mentioned George Bush's obsession with missile defense, which Russia genuinely regarded and still regards as a threat to its own security. The West was also determined to expand NATO, to take in the newly liberated uh, nations of East and Central Europe. This was a key point for the US administration, looking to lock in the gains of the, uh, the end of the Cold War. Was Russia worried by this? Did they need to be worried by this? The answer is, Russia had no need to be worried at all if it was genuinely trying to be part of the Western-oriented world. But Putin saw NATO's expansion as proof that Russia wasn't welcome in the Western world. Putin asked, why are you doing this? We're supposed to be on the same side, so why are you expanding a military alliance right up to our borders, treating us as if we're the enemy? He had no conception of the fact that it was his behavior at home that worried the East Europeans with their long, deeply rooted fears of Russia and memories of Soviet occupation. Conversely, the West, while expanding NATO, had little understanding, I think, of Russia's fears of encirclement. Or to be precise, there were those who understood this very well, but they were overruled by the neoconservatives in the Bush administration who just didn't care. I um, remember speaking to um, Nick Burns, who uh, was America's ambassador to NATO and later Under Secretary of State, about this, and I said to him, look, surely Russia has the right to be concerned about an a military alliance moving up right up to its border, to effectively into its backyard. And Burns's answer was very succinct. He said, tough. They've lost that right. The Europeans, France and Germany in particular, had a different view of Russia. I don't know whether that's because of the geographical proximity or the shared experience of war and occupation and also considerations of economic advantage. But the French and German politicians generally have a different attitude to Russia. They tend to believe that Russia belongs in Europe. Um, Chirac and Schroeder especially epitomized that view. Um, and it's what made them often stand apart from America and its ally, Britain, over many issues such as the intervention in Iraq. 
France, Germany and Russia coordinated their opposition to the war against Iraq. <clears throat> Let me look a little bit more closely at, at this spiral of mistrust. On the one hand, we have Putin cracking down at home and failing to see that this undermines his attempts to woo the West. At the same time, you have NATO expanding towards Russia and Bush deploying a missile shield and failing to see or care that these things worry Russia. At the same time, the West sees Russia steadily regressing, pulling back from the democracy and cooperation that he had promised. I've already spoken about the media crackdown, the Khodorkovsky affair, Chechnya, but there were other things too. Putin also began creating what he called a vertical of power, essentially subordinating all centers of power in the Russian Federation to the Kremlin and ultimately to himself. He created super governors to run Russia's regions, taking away the sovereignty that Yeltsin had given them. He appointed his own cronies, uh, usually former KGB men or fellow Leningraders, to almost all the key positions, and he filled the upper house of parliament with Kremlin nominees. At the same time, Putin still seemed determined to curry favour with the West. In 2003, he invited dozens of uh, world leaders to St. Petersburg to celebrate the city's 300th anniversary. In 2005, he invited them all again to Moscow to mark the 60th anniversary of the end of the war in Europe. Putin and George Bush really did strike up a very close rapport. They liked each other, they got on well together, and yet Bush somehow constantly contrived to poke his friend in the eye. For instance, for the 300th anniversary of St. Petersburg, Bush turned up more than a day later than all the other world leaders, and only after going first to Poland to thank them conspicuously for helping out with the Iraq war. Jacques Chirac apparently couldn't understand why Bush had taken that decision. Bush did attend the World War II celebrations in Moscow in 2005, but on the way there, he went to Riga, the capital of Latvia, where he condemned the Russians for having outstayed their welcome after liberating them in the Second World War, which, of course, the Latvians see as occupation, not liberation. And if the Russians were unhappy with that, they were even more unhappy when Bush flew straight from Moscow um, to Tbilisi in Georgia to congratulate the Georgians on having embarked on a pro-Western or effectively anti-Russian course. Bush praised Georgia as a beacon of liberty for this region and the world. And that must have been a message that Putin got loud and clear. So Putin was re-elected for a second term in uh, March 2004. And after that, what I call Putin Mark II, things went even faster downhill. You probably remember the, the, the tragedy in the school at Beslan in, in southern Russia on the 1st of September 2004 when Chechen terrorists seized the school, held it for several days, and 300-odd uh, people were, were, were killed when uh, the, the Russian troops went in to, to resolve the situation. Well, Putin's reaction to that was really quite astonishing. It certainly astonished people in the West. This was a terrible tragedy caused by Chechen terrorists, but Putin was now beginning to turn against the West, and he blamed it 
effectively in a speech on television for having caused or created the conditions for this terrorist act in Beslan. He accused the West of trying to tear Russia apart. And he used it as an excuse to crack down even harder and solidify his vertical of power. Now he abolished direct elections of regional governors and removed independent seats from the Duma, the Russian parliament. So it was hardly surprising that the West began pulling up its guard now rather than inviting Russia into the family as Putin wanted. And yet Putin didn't see this as a reaction to his own policies. He firmly believed, and we heard about this from a number of, of inter interviews with close advisors in Russia, he firmly believed, and he still believes, that the West was out to get him, that the West was plotting to undermine his regime and indeed to destroy Russia. What convinced him of this was the two colored revolutions, the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003 uh, and the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in late 2004. Both of those events had a remarkable effect on Putin's thinking and on Russian policies. In both cases, the Russians believed that the West was meddling, pouring in money and advisors to turn Russia's neighbors against it. Now, in fact, it is true that um, although both of those revolutions in Georgia and Ukraine were caused by attempts to falsify uh, election results and keep out the pro-Western opposition, it is true that the West did support NGOs and pro-democracy groups there with cash and with advice. But Moscow saw this as something much more sinister, nothing less than a Western plot. The Kremlin sent its, sent its own advisors or spin doctors to Ukraine to help the pro-Russian candidate Viktor Yanukovych. We interviewed two of them, Gleb Pavlovsky and Sergei Markov. And their interpretation of the Ukraine events was, for me, one of the most revealing parts of the work that we did. They reveal an, an astonishing level of paranoia in the Kremlin regarding the West's motives. One of the advisors, Sergei Markov, spoke in, in, in quite apocalyptic terms about the West's alleged goals in Ukraine. He said that the West's favored candidate there, Viktor Yushchenko, who became president in the end, was a pawn in the hands of American-based Ukrainian nationalists and Nazis who, and I quote, were determined that Ukrainians and Russians should start killing each other, and I mean killing each other. And he added that they wouldn't be happy until blood was spilt between Russians and Ukrainians. The other advisor, Gleb Pavlovsky, said there was a Destroy Russia project, which began in Chechnya and continued with the election of pro-Western presidents in Georgia and Ukraine. Now, these views sound extreme, they sound incredible, but the point is, and the reason I'm, I'm giving them to you in such detail, is that I feel pretty sure that they're shared in the Kremlin by Putin himself. Pavlovsky and Markov went back to Moscow to help organize the Kremlin's response to the Ukraine events to prevent the contagion of colored revolutions from spreading. Within weeks, they'd cracked down on foreign-funded NGOs operating in, in Russia, and they set up NASHI, the nationalist <coughs> youth group, whose prime function 
was to combat anti-Kremlin protests and prevent a coloured revolution from happening. Again, the West was appalled by all of that and kept up a, a barrage of criticism, at which point Putin finally, after all the years of trying to be nice and woo the West, finally he lost his cool. Apparently this happened in particular at a summit meeting in February 2005 in Bratislava with George Bush, where, um, according to uh, the Americans, Putin pulled out what the Americans like to call his grievance cards. Putin carries around with him cards, sort of index cards with notes, speaking notes. So he keeps the, 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 them in his uh, jacket pocket. And uh, on this occasion, as, as I say, the Americans say, he pulled out his grievance cards. And the rant went something like this. We've done everything we can for you. We supported you in the war on terror. We closed down bases. We let you destroy the ABM treaty without making a big fuss. We didn't even let Iraq get between us. And what did we get in return? Nothing. You haven't abolished the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. That's a Soviet-era law that restricts trade with Russia. You keep moving the goalposts on uh, our entry into the World Trade Organization. You don't even ratify the CFE Arms Control Treaty. You want to build a missile shield that makes us feel vulnerable. And you're trying to bring all our neighbors into NATO. Instead of praise for our policies aimed at reforming our economy and tying it into the world system, all we hear are complaints about our internal affairs, human rights, our supposed backsliding on democracy, Chechnya, media, Khodorkovsky. When will it all end? Bush's national security advisor, Stephen Hadley, told us that this was probably the testiest meeting between the two leaders. It was here, incidentally, that Putin tried to turn the tables on Bush um, by claiming that America didn't have a free press either. Um, he said that uh, Bush had um, allegedly had Dan Rather, the uh, CBS news anchor, fired for criticizing him. Bush tried to explain to him that this wasn't the case and that it couldn't happen in America. But Putin was in, in no mood to, to listen. Instead, he hit back on American democracy as well. And he said, well, the American people didn't even elect their president. An electoral college does that. And Bush said to him, Vladimir, don't say that publicly. Whatever you do, you'll just show everyone you don't understand our system at all. At the beginning of 2006, things got even worse when Russia cut gas supplies, not for the last time, to Ukraine to demonstrate that it was not willing to go on subsidizing a country which was siding with the West. And since we've reached this point in, in the new Cold War, as it's been called, I thought I would just, if you bear with me for maybe five minutes, I'll read you just a little section from, from the book, um, partly because it illustrates the situation that, that came about then and also because you can see the way we've, we've worked with different sources, different people telling us about the same event so that we can build up uh, an idea of how it uh, happened. This little section is called A Cold War Encounter. It was Saturday the 21st of October 2006. The last yellowing leaves were falling from the birch trees outside Putin's window at his country residence, Nova Agoryova. It was cold and raining. He was already in a foul mood. The previous day, he had attended a summit with 25 European Union leaders in Finland. It was supposed to be an informal meeting, a cosy gathering with no set agenda or agreements to be signed, 
but nonetheless, he had had to listen to a litany of complaints about the murder of Anna Politkovskaya, about his government's attempt to squeeze Shell out of a multi-billion dollar project, about Russia's unreliability as an energy provider, about Georgia. The Europeans explained that they were keen to build a close partnership with Russia's southern neighbour and deplored the sanctions recently introduced by the Kremlin against Georgia. But Putin expounded at some length his view that President Saakashvili of Georgia was hell-bent on regaining the breakaway regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia and warned them that this would lead to bloodshed. Only his friend Jacques Chirac supported him, telling the others that relations with Russia were more important than Georgia. It was the middle of the night before Putin got home. On Saturday afternoon, he called his 11 most powerful colleagues, his Security Council, to his residence. He told them about his uncomfortable meeting with the EU leaders, and they considered their options in Georgia. Putin also had an appointment with the US Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, who was waiting at her hotel in Moscow. But he was not looking forward to it. He didn't feel like meeting her, one of his close aides recalls, but he knew he had to. Rice was wondering why their meeting was so delayed. Usually, she said, he saw me right away unless he wanted to make a point. After their working session, the members of the Security Council drove to a nearby government lodge, a baronial-style chateau at Barvicha, for a special dinner. Three members, including the Security Council Secretary, Igor Ivanov, and the future President, Dmitry Medvedev, had recent birthdays to celebrate. Here, Putin decided to play a joke on Rice. According to one of those present, he looked at his watch and a mischievous smile appeared on his face. Why do we have to wind things up in a rush, he said. Let's put on a little show for her. If she wants, tell her I'll meet her here, but don't tell her I've got the entire Security Council with me. It was 5 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30, Rice recalls. Finally, about 7.30, they said, he's ready to see you now. She and the American ambassador, Bill Burns, were whisked out into, into the dark, wet countryside along the elite rublyovo uspensky highway dotted with ostentatious red-brick mansions through the luxury village of Barvicha with its Lamborghini showroom and designer boutiques and then through the tall iron gates of the government estate. Rice and Burns had never seen such a building before in Russia, all turrets and dark stairways like Dracula's castle. Suddenly the doors of the dining room were flung open and the Americans were confronted with an unexpected sight, the full Russia, Russian Security Council, the very heart of Russian power, around a banquet table. Burns could hardly take breath, according to one witness, while Condi was full of composure. Oh, she said, it's the Security Council. The Russians appreciated her sang-froid. She wasn't even an iron woman, said one Putin aide, much higher. Her old friend, Sergei Ivanov, joked to her, we're discussing top secret matters here. Here's some top secret military intelligence documents. Would you like to see them, Condoleezza? <laughs> there was much laughter and some raised eyebrows on the American side when the Russians brought out bottles of Georgian wine. This was just after the arrest of Russian officers in Georgia and the embargo on Georgian products. The Russians started telling crude jokes about the Georgians, which Rice could understand despite the interpreter's attempts to clean things up. After a while, Rice said to Putin, you know, we have some work to do. 
Putin took his guests off to a side room with Defence Minister Sergei Ivanov and the Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who acted as interpreter. Here the talk got serious. Putin started lecturing Rice about Ukraine, its history and demographics, and why America was wrong to even contemplate bringing it into NATO. Ivanov recalled in an interview, Putin explained what Ukraine was, at least a third of the population are ethnic Russians, and the negative consequences that could arise, not only for us, but for all of Europe, if Ukraine and Georgia were dragged into NATO. According to Bill Burns, Rice retorted that sovereign states had the right to make their sovereign choices about which institutions or alliances they wish to belong to, and that this should not be seen as threatening. But Putin was not at all persuaded by that. You do not understand what you are doing, he said. You're playing with fire. Then the lecture turned to the recent events in Georgia, and Rice decided to give as good as she got. President Bush, Bush has told me to come and say that if Russia does anything in Georgia, there will be a rupture in US-Russia relations. Ambassador Burns recalls that Putin's answer was unmistakable. If Georgian provocations caused a security problem, Russia would respond. Rice could feel Putin's tone turning hard-edged. All of a sudden, Putin stood up, looking angry and intimidating. Reflexively, Rice also stood up, and in her high heels, she was now taller than the Russian, looking down at him. She remembers it as not a nice moment, probably the toughest moment between the two of us. Putin decided to tell it straight. If the Georgians provoke any violence, he said, there will be consequences, and you tell that to your president. Lavrov, who was interpreting, didn't translate the last phrase, but Rice had understood. This was a forceful warning from a, an angry Putin, one that she would remember clearly two years later when Russia brought down the might of its armed forces on Georgia after Saakashvili launched an ill-conceived attack on South Ossetia. So that's an example of um, what relations were like, a little... Uh, cameo of relations at that point. In the second half of 2007, uh, which was the period when I was working as a, a media advisor to the Kremlin, I noticed there was a kind of paralysis in the Kremlin. Nobody would take any decisions. Nobody knew what job they would be doing in six months' time, because Putin was preoccupied with finding a way around the constitutional obstacle that prevented him from serving for a third consecutive term as president. As we now know, the arrangement with Dmitry Medvedev, who was ushered into the presidency the following spring, was always going to be a temporary thing, a seat-warming exercise to observe constitutional niceties while preserving Putin's grip on power. In terms of foreign policy, the coming of Medvedev made no real difference. I would suggest that Russian foreign policy will never substantially differ. Uh, whoever its leaders are, their priority will always be Russia first. There has been a certain improvement, but not because of Medvedev. And here I, I want to mention an another rule of Russian politics, which is that its foreign policy is almost always reactive. So they had to wait for Barack Obama to come to office and to make gestures, which they would then respond to. In fact, they, they'd completely misjudged the significance of uh, the Obama phenomenon. 
I was astonished working for them at the time to see that while the rest of the world was agog with excitement about Obama, in Russia they thought, well, first of all, he's never going to be elected, and secondly, if he is, it won't make any difference. So, for instance, when Medvedev made a planned State of the Nation speech the morning after Obama was elected, he didn't even mention it. No congratulations, nothing. And in fact, he made things worse by threatening to install new missiles in Kaliningrad region, just next to Poland. As I say, it took some time for them to understand that this was not Bush anymore and that they could do business with Washington again. But that only happened after Obama made the first move. It was only when he abandoned Bush's missile defense plans that the Russians began to believe something had changed. So is or was Medvedev really different? I would contend that he was, and not just in style. In his first three years, I think Medvedev seemed interested in improving human rights. He met human rights groups. He had a totally different attitude towards the murders of journalists compared to Putin. On the economy, too, he seemed genuinely determined to change things, or at least he evidently recognized that the Putin system wasn't good enough. I think he genuinely wanted to move Russia away from its dependence on oil and gas and to make it a, a modern uh, manufacturing economy. But he failed, and I, I think he failed partly because of corruption, which grew exponentially during those years, that's a huge topic too big for, the, for this lecture. Um, and I think he failed also partly because of his own personality. He just wasn't big enough to take on Putin. It, it was rather sad to hear him admit last September when they announced that they were going to do the job swap um, after the, the coming presidential election that, that if his poll ratings had gone above Putin's, then the, the decision might have been different. Maybe he would have challenged Putin to allow him to stay on as president. But of course, the fact is he never did become as popular as Putin. So now, as we all know, Putin is coming back, barring some strange mis mishap. And we're all wondering what that will mean. He's certainly facing more trouble than he expected. The job swap itself, announced last uh, September, enraged a lot of Russians. And the fixing of the Duma election, the parliamentary election in December, even more so. I'm not going to predict what, what he's likely to do. Maybe he will bend a little, there is some talk of political reforms. Or maybe he will crack down. I just don't know. I think it depends perhaps on, on how big and bold these anti-Kremlin <coughs> demonstrations become. It is clear, though, that Putin regards this recent wave of protests caused by evidence of blatant election fraud as part of a pattern, the pattern that I mentioned in Georgia and Ukraine. He sees the hand of foreign governments and NGOs at work here, undermining his government. He even blamed Hillary Clinton for inciting the demonstrations and threatened to take more action against Western interference in Russia's democratic process. The fact is, he and his cronies have a lot to lose. I don't think he's just against Western-style democracy per se. He's also built up a government clique, uh, his friends, former KGB associates, who control vast amounts 
of Russia's wealth and business. The opposition claims that the corruption in Russia reaches right up to the top, indeed that it stems from the top. And if that is so, it's obvious that Putin has a lot to fear if the opposition comes to power. So, I'm coming to my conclusion. Um, to answer the question I posed at the beginning, did the West make things worse? And did we squander the chance to bring Russia in from the cold? I think we did. First of all, our policies during the, the Yeltsin period left many Russians feeling disillusioned with the West and even with capitalism, which became associated in many people's minds with poverty and chaos. Democracy was discredited. Russia felt humiliated by being ignored in global decision-making. And all of that provided fertile ground for someone like Putin to become very popular. Then, during the Putin period, the West not only failed to respond to his early gestures and brushed aside his talk of joining NATO and so on, but it pursued a series of policies which marginalized Russia and, in Russia's view, threatened its security. That might not have mattered so much with a different leader in the Kremlin, but Putin is an old thinker, old thinker, paranoid about encirclement and obsessive about Russia's place in the world. So those policies, those Western policies, instead of encouraging better behavior, actually entrenched the very worst aspects of his character and policies. I don't think Putin really understands democracy. I think he may be sincere when he says that he wants Russia to be democratic, but I don't think he really understands what that means. That's shown by the very fact that he doesn't trust the Russian people, despite his evident popularity, to participate in genuinely free elections. Instead, he maneuvers and controls and fixes things with his mate Medvedev so that they can somehow guide Russia towards democracy. Time and again, Putin has revealed his flawed understanding of how the West works. He thinks all governments control the media. He thinks it's the job of television to explain government policies, but not to discuss the pros and cons of proposals before they become government policy. He falls for conspiracy theories. He once said that the war in Georgia was started in order to help John McCain's presidential campaign against Barack Obama. He believes all sorts of nonsense served up to him by his intelligence services, such as the idea that America has special poultry factories producing substandard chickens for export to Russia. He believes nothing will happen properly if he doesn't personally supervise it. So, for instance, after the outbreak of wildfires in the summer of 2010, he had uh, closed-circuit television cameras installed in damaged villages so that he could personally monitor the progress in rebuilding them from his office desk in the White House. And yet, he is popular. At the beginning of this talk, I pointed to the mistaken Western, especially American, belief that Russia was just a Western country waiting to be freed. And I think Putin plays to that part of the Russian mind that rebels instinctively against that. He speaks for those who want to have a Western economy and enjoy all the benefits of it, but who want to find their own path towards that future and recall, recoil also from some of the West's failings. 
Putin speaks for those who want Russia to be respected in the world, and sadly for those millions of Russians who perhaps confuse being respected with being feared. And he speaks for those who simply love Russia and savor its uniqueness, those Russians who infuriate Westerners like myself, who genuinely try to understand the place by smirking at us and saying, oh, you'll never understand the Russian soul. Now, I don't claim to understand everything about Russia, far from it. The only thing I think I do understand is that they detest being lectured, patronized, or forced into a corner. It's always counterproductive. However much we may detest Putin's policies, we shouldn't forget that he does remain the most popular individual politician in Russia, and that may be because he strikes a chord with those who don't want their country to be pushed around. It may seem like a cop-out, but I don't think there's anything we can do to change things in Russia. We tried to do that throughout most of the 20th century and failed. We tried to foist Western values on them under Yeltsin and helped to start a backlash. And for the last 12 years, we've continued to treat them as second-class world citizens while making them feel vulnerable and threatened. I think the best thing we can do now is sit back and let things take their course and just hope that eventually the Russians will get both democracy and stability. Often it's presented to them that it has to be a choice between democracy and stability. I don't think it has to be a choice. That's it, really. Um, I'm happy to take uh, questions. Just bef before I do, I just mentioned that my book will be on sale, I think, outside at the end of the, uh, of the talk. Um, and also, this will surprise you even more, um, I have some copies of my CD, an album of songs that I made um, at the end of last year. I think it's a great companion to the book. <laughs> uh, thank you, Angus, very much indeed. Uh, uh, before I begin on the questions, uh, I should have informed you that the Twitter hashtag is hash LSE Russia. You will know what that means, I don't. Um, I should also tell you that the event is being recorded and hopefully a podcast will be available online. And because it is being uh, recorded, can I ask you please, when I recognize you for a question, to wait until the microphone arrives and then could you possibly say who you are and where you're from because that will help Angus, I think, in answering the questions. So, open to questions. We have one on the left over there. Hello, Will Baines, ex-BBC. Um, Angus, you haven't mentioned anything about the Russian Orthodox Church and its relationship with Putin. Um, from the little bit of film that I've seen, he certainly attends some of their ceremonies. Have, has he any influence on it, or does it have any influence on him? Should I ask that here? Or, or, uh, uh, I think you can answer from there as you like. Okay. Um, I didn't go into it because it's not something I know an awful lot about, to be honest. Um, I noticed that at the uh, Orthodox Christmas yesterday or the day before, Putin uh, was 
reminiscing about how he had been baptized and how he had a very close relationship and his parents had a close, close relationship with the tw- church, which is quite surprising given the period uh, that he was brought up, the period he was speaking about um, in deepest communism. Um, as for the influence, I mean, uh, you know, the, obviously the, the, the church has come out of its shell that it was forced into uh, in, in, in the communist period, and I think uh, Putin tries to use it to the maximum to, to, uh, for, for, for his own purposes, really. Um, I, again, it's all part of the, the, this thing, you know, what is Russia, what makes us unique, and so on. And um, the very fact that he makes it so public and obvious that he is a believer and, uh, and, and attends church, I think, is part of that strategy. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Andrew Rudlewski. I'm just a member of the public who's interested. Um, you touched very briefly upon uh, the matter of corruption uh, within Russia and the fact that it's grown greatly from your point of view over the recent history. But of course, um, I've lived in communist Poland and uh, I think pretty much every communist country um, corruption was endemic. It was the only way of surviving. And the, you described the various oligarchs as uh, businessmen. They were not businessmen. Yeah? These were deeply corrupt apparatchiks uh, who abused their position uh, to gain control of uh, state uh, uh, products. And so uh, I wonder if you're underestimating the importance of, of corruption and particularly the misunderstanding and the inability of Americans to understand the power of corruption and how endemic it was in those societies. Yeah. No, I agree completely. It was endemic in those societies and part of the, of the, the communist state. And, and as you indicated, it's very often the same individuals who then uh, re-emerged as businessmen in, in, in the, the post-communist world who are continuing to act in that way. Um, but I think the, the magnitude has grown considerably over the last 12 years, even according to official statistics given by, by the Kremlin. You know, the size of the average bribe now in Russia is phenomenal. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's all, it seems to be almost in, inbred in Russian officials not to do anything uh, without a, a backhander. And, only very occasionally do a few of them get uh, caught out. There are a couple of uh, officials from the Kremlin administration who ended up in jail last year um, after trying to extort money from Toshiba. Um, and the way, th- this is a very typical story. Um, th- th- there was a tender put out for medical equipment, um, CT scanners for, for Russian hospitals. And these two characters invented a blacklist of companies that wouldn't be allowed to compete uh, to, 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 uh, to sell the, the, these uh, scanners. Uh, Toshiba were on that blacklist and the, these characters said to Toshiba, well, you know, you're on the blacklist but of course you could come off it for a uh, million dollars. And Toshiba, to their credit, reported this to the authorities and it was investigated and the two ended up in jails. But that's one very small story. Uh, which is not at all typical of what goes on. Uh, question over there. Hello, I'm Alex from Russia. Basically, you told about the different ways uh, Putin can rule now and about the different things he can do. 
what could be your advice to him now? And I just want to know about it. I'm sorry, advice to whom? To Putin? Yes, to Mr. Putin. <laughs> Resign. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> I mean, uh, really, like, what to do, because he's a powerful man, you know, and just to let somebody else rule the country is kind of, like, not in his habit, you know. So what would be the best actions he can do, what's your opinion, rather than resign, of course. But, but Putin, I, I think, is... I don't know whether he's clinically paranoid, but he, he appears to me to be paranoid about so many things, about the, the West's uh, alleged... Um, conspiracy to undermine him and to tear Russia apart. Um, the best thing he could could do would be to try and revive his relationship with uh, Western countries and understand finally that he's never going to get on well with the West if he continues to um, carry out an, an undemocratic course at home. Um, the Russians used to complained to me when I was working for them that the West still sees us as a communist country. Can't they see that we're, we're not communist anymore? And I would say to them, well, the trouble is you still act as if you're co communists. You know, you're still um, beating up demonstrators who, who, who come out to protest against you. Once you stop doing that, people will take you seriously when you talk about being democratic. Uh, my name's John Ewan. My question is more on the foreign policy side, and I'm thinking particularly, you stressed a great deal the sense of paranoia about the outside world. Now, could you just give us a few ideas as to what is the Russian feeling about the growing power of China? And perhaps also you might mention, say, something about Iran as well. You mentioned a great deal about the, the Western relationship with the West. What about China? What about Iran? Thanks very much. Um, as far as China is concerned, um, Putin has made great efforts to, to um, improve relations with China. Um, they've recently opened a, a, an oil pipeline there, so they see the economic advantage of, of getting on well with China. Um, and of course they get classed together with China as one of the so-called BRIC countries, uh, Russia being the one BRIC country that doesn't really come up to scratch. Um, but I think they, you know, they, in some ways they see China as, a, as an economic model, and um, probably rightly so. It's, it's always baffled me that um, you know, over the last 20 years, when Russia had the chance to reform its economy and become a modern, modernizing uh, uh, manufacturing economy, um, all the goods, electronic goods, clothes and so on that you buy in the West have made in China written on them. Nothing gets made in, in, in Russia. Um, back in the Yeltsin years when I lived there, uh, I knew a, a chap who worked for one of the mobile phone companies, I think it was Motorola. They had their research team based in Moscow. So they were using Russian brains to develop new circuitry and so on. Were, at that point they were developing the, the smallest possible chip for, for the new mobile phones. But the phones themselves were all manufactured somewhere else, probably in China. And I think that illustrates the problem that Russia has. It's got the brains, but it still doesn't have the manufacturing base um, to, to produce things. Just a word on, on Iran. Um, the, the Russians often get blamed by, by the Western media for 
somehow propping up Iran because, of course, they, they've built a nuclear reactor for them and some people suggest that uh, they uh, are encouraging them in some way to, to build nuclear weapons and so on. Um, I think what the West probably doesn't take into account there is that uh, you know, Russia does have a great strategic interest in Iran. They are almost neighbors. They share the Caspian Sea and so on. And they have huge commercial interests there as well that they're not willing to throw away. Um, having said that, I think they would be as appalled as anyone else if Iran really did develop uh, intercontinental uh, nuclear missiles. Um, they're trying to be, pr be pragmatic or have it both ways. I'm taking one question upstairs, then another question downstairs, then another question upstairs, okay? So, thank you. Hello, uh, yes, um, my name's Sean Mitchell. I'm a former Russian studies student, um, but now just a member of the public. Thank you for your fascinating talk, Mr. Roxborough. Um, uh, it was very refreshing to hear someone say, ultimately let Russia go her own way and stop trying to impose Western models on her. That's the first time I've heard somebody say that. And I have to say, I'm not the expert that you are, obviously, but it does chime in very much with my own views. But my, my question to you is, do you think that after the chaos of the 1990s, that Putin, um, throughout this uh, previous decade, has been uh, leading Russian uh, opinion in a more sort of xenophobic mode or do you think he's been responding to the, um, the, the spirit that's out there amongst the Russian people who were so alienated from the West based on all the terrible mistakes that were made by governments during that period? I, I think it's a bit of both really. Um, I mean that spirit is there as you say among Russian people and Putin very cleverly feeds into that um, he uses that as his, his basis. Um, and as I've indicated, I think he's also been encouraged in, in, in these uh, sort of anti-Western views by what he perceives as the West's lack of response to his own overtures and the West's encroachment on what he regards as, as Russian sort of, not territory, physically territory, but uh, on Russian interests, the, the expansion of NATO, the missile shield, and so on. Um, and even the, uh, you know, the, what the Russians call the near abroad, the former republics of the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe, um, where Russia believes it has legitimate interests. Um, Putin caused a huge fuss a few years ago when he described the, the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, what he meant, I think, by that was not so much uh, that he regretted the end of communism as such, but literally he was talking about the geopolitical implications of it, the fact that this huge country, the Soviet Union, split up into 15 smaller countries in which millions of Russians were left stranded in, in, in some of the other countries. So there are millions of Russians in Kazakhstan, in, in the Baltic states and so on. And he believes that Russia has a legitimate right not to interfere in those countries necessarily, but at least to defend the interests of Russians who through no fault of their own ended up living in foreign, in foreign states. Thank you. My name is Steve, and I was born in Leningrad just a few years after Mr. Putin was born there. So I, I, I know what it is to grow up to grow up in Leningrad. And knowing Mr. Putin's background after I read his book in Russian, 
it is it is a clear picture of a strong man who grew up streetwise running a small gang in downtown Leningrad strong man in 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 many ways being dominant male being a strong wrestler black belt karate judo you name it a man who grew up learning how to dominate to make others submissive to control people in his small gang then bigger gang then KGB training then all other trainings and still many Russians don't see him as an intellectual as a wise logical thoughtful leader if you read his Russian speeches you'll be surprised how many uh, obscenities uh, colloquial language is used in his talk to the nation and now I'm an American citizen and I'm living in Los Angeles for the last 20 years it gives me a sense of freedom and some perspective and I see more and more than Putin is probably not a leader but just a figurehead of some hidden Politburo which is really a decision-making body, Soviet-style. We don't know who... your question. Yes. What is your take on that? Is that that Politburo that makes decision who will be the next president six months before the actual election? I think um, it's very interesting what you say. Um, I think in a sense there is, but not, not a formalized Politburo, but there is certainly... Um, the group of cronies who, who Putin has gathered around him. Um, some of them, as I mentioned, former KGB people, um, others just from Leningrad. Others, it's remarkable, um, some of the most powerful business people, and who therefore control the politics in the country as well, um, are people with whom Putin founded a so-called Dacha cooperative uh, just outside St. Petersburg. In other words, he and a few friends got together and built summer houses around a, a lake called Kolominsky, I think, in, outside uh, St. Petersburg. Um, and now, half of these people are in the, uh, the, in fact, all of them, I think, are in the, the Forbes list of the top, uh, of the most wealthy Russians. And they control the top banks, the top media, and so on. And that's why I say they have a lot to lose if you know, being enmeshed in, in what is clearly some sort of corrupt system, if the opposition comes to power and starts to undermine all of that, they've got a lot to, to, to lose. And for that reason, I think they will hang on to it tooth and nail. I'm a naturally born American citizen from New York. Uh, you spoke at considerable length about the diplomatic relationship between President Bush and President Putin. Um, and when President Bush initially met President Putin, he said, I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. And a lot of Americans scratched their heads and wondered what in fact President Bush meant by that. Um, and I wonder if you could speak uh, a little bit about the personal relationship between the two presidents and perhaps also what reaction, if there was any, uh, by that comment that President Bush made from President Putin and perhaps the Russians? 
Um, yeah, the, uh, I remember looking at the, f- the film when I was writing the book, the, the film of that moment, that was in Ljubljana, their first summit meeting, um, and they gave a press conference afterwards where uh, Bush pronounced these words that he looked into uh, Putin's eyes and seen his soul, and uh, Putin looked like a little boy. He said, thank you, mister. <laughs> it was very touching. It was as if he couldn't believe that Bush had said such a thing about him. Um, and of course, what, I, I don't know if you know, what, what one of the things that prompted Bush to say this um, was a story that, that uh, Putin told him during that first meeting of his cross, his Christian cross, which um, apparently ha- had been uh, lost in, in his family dacha when it burnt down. And uh, Putin told Bush that when the workmen were clearing up the mess, this was the only thing that was found intact, his, his Christian cross, and that he, he had worn it ever since. And uh, Bush said to him, I can't believe that you're telling me this, so you're a Christian. And I think, you know, this was a, a big eye-opener for, for, for George Bush. There's a question over there. Hello, uh, my name is Ros Ewan-Smith. I used to study Russian at university. Um, you spoke quite a bit about Putin's attitude towards foreign NGOs and charities. And I was just interested because um, I'm aware that he doesn't have the most... He's not particularly nice to some of his homegrown charities, such as the um, Soldiers' Mothers. And um, I'm, I'm also aware that um, I think during his presidency, he was spending more on aid um, to people with HIV in Africa than those with HIV in his own country. And this seems to be you know, quite a blatant disrespect for the life of his own citizens. So I was wondering what you thought of that um, and whether... You know, particularly in light of his popularity at home. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, his objections to organisations like the Soldiers' Mothers is that they are very critical of his tactics in Chechnya. Um, so it's a it's a political thing. Um, but otherwise, I mean, as far, I, I I don't know the answer probably to to your question. But you know, um, his main objections politically certainly are to. Um, NGOs that get their funding from abroad because he thinks that this is a Trojan horse. It's a way of, of uh, getting Western money in, into R- Russian opposition groups and he believes to undermine his position and, and the system. Hello, good evening and, and thank you. Um, my name's Elaine. I'm doing a, a project on the Eurasian Union. I'm not very sure if you've heard of that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so um, I wanted to ask if you thought if the I wanted to know whether um, you felt that the Eurasian Union demonstrated um, Putin possibly trying to gain um, regain control over the former um, Soviet Union countries, and also trying to um, demonstrate to the the, the West that. Um, that basically he's, you know, yeah. on his, um, you know, centralised power, his sovereignty, how it's, you know, I've, yeah. I've lost, sorry. It, it, it comes back to what I said about um, Putin regretting the demise of the Soviet Union, of course, and, and the fact that uh, millions of Russians ended up living in, in neighbouring countries. He believes that all of those countries, because of their 
70 years living together in the Soviet Union have a, a common history, a common culture, a common past and so on, something that should be preserved. Um, now he's denied that uh, his suggestion uh, for the creation of a, a, a Eurasian Union is an attempt to rebuild the Soviet Union. Um, he says that at the most what he's looking at is, is a sort of um, uh, tra uh, what's the word? The the the, uh, the EU has uh, as the EU has a sort of a trading block, um, maybe eventually a common currency and so on. Um, but I imagine that's the beginning for him. You know, um, of course he would have to start with those sort of things. But if it worked, then just as the European Union does, I can imagine that it would develop political politically as well. Um, and I don't think Putin would regret that. There's a question over there on the left. Hello, uh, I'm Ruta from Lithuania. I actually uh, the same subject. I just wanted to ask if Western states step uh, steps back, how that would affect post-Soviet uh, countries, including Baltic states, which like doesn't want to go back to Soviet Union. So, if Western states do what, if they uh, steps back from mm -hmm. like leaves Putin to go his way. Okay. Um, to, to be honest, I, I do not see um, any sort of malicious intent on, on the part of, of the Russians, certainly of, of Putin, towards those states. I think he he is concerned with um, the conditions that Russia, native, the native Russians have living in, in those countries, not so much in Lithuania because there aren't that many of them, it's not a problem. Um, Latvia and Estonia initially after independence did bring in some pretty, uh, not repressive, that's probably too, too strong a word, but um, laws that certainly restricted the rights of Russians quite a lot. And, mm -hmm. Well, there are a lot of Russians living in Latvia, he would say. <laughs> That's why. I, I, I have a you know, I don't know, I don't want to get enmeshed in this, in this dispute, although I did once, uh, when I was working for the BBC, I, I went to, um, to Latvia and did a story about the uh, relationship between Russians and, and Latvians living there. I, I went to a school in particular, a Russian school, where Russian children were being taught by Russian teachers but a, a language law had just been passed which required all the tuition to take place in Latvian. And the teachers were saying to me, this is crazy, you know, we're speaking, we are having to speak a foreign language to the, to the children that we're teaching, even though everybody in this school is Russian. Uh, and she, well, one poor teacher admitted to me that in the history classes when things got difficult, she actually did slip into Russian sometimes just to explain to the kids what she, what, what she was trying to say. And she almost lost her job for saying that to me. Sorry, I think maybe afterwards. I've got another question over there. I'm David Odije, member of the public. I would like to know what kind of future do you see for Russia after Putin, especially in regards to relations with the West? Um, I'm kind of optimistic. I, I, I don't think Putin is going to last forever. Um, 
And although there has always been this sort of monumental struggle going on in Russia o o over the centuries about is it a Western country or is it, is it a, 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 some sort of special Slavic uh, entity, um, I think that basically it is Western-leaning and wants to become part of, part of the West. And I think it will in the end. But as I say, the way to go about achieving that, I think, I think there's not a lot that the West can do to help it achieve that. In fact, the, the, the more we lecture them to try and persuade them to become like us, the more they rebel against that. I think we should leave them to it, and they'll probably get there in the end on their own. And this, I'm afraid, will have to be the last question. Hi, my name is uh, Roshi Murphy. I'm a member of the public as well, but I used to study Russia from a legal and human rights perspective. Um, I think it kind of ties into the last question you just answered there, but I just want to know what your view is of the civil society in Russia at the moment, just taking into account, I think, especially the protests that came about as a result of the State Duma elections. I feel like there was a bit of a change in the kind of grassroots perspective of the politics in Russia. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, I think something did change in, in December. Um, I mean, some of the attempts to, to falsify uh, the, 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 the ballot were so blatant that people have just rebelled against it and said, finally, th that's enough. Um, there is a growing middle class in Russia because of the reforms. A lot of that's a sort of constituency for, for reform. Um, the question is what, what that will lead to. Um, it's always been my view that um, big change in Russia comes about when it has started at the top. Um, the, it, was, it was only when Gorbachev, for instance, began his reforms of openness and, and perestroika that this filtered down and then you saw people on the streets taking things into their own hands and civil society uh, uh, grew up on the basis of that. It was suppressed for a long time under, under Putin, and now we see it coming through again. Um, but I just wonder whether that's enough to bring about change in Russia. I, I tend to feel that until those protesters find a voice in the establishment, in other words, a Gorbachev-type figure, we all thought it might have been Medvedev, but it turned out, turned out not to be, but somebody like that who from within the system will be willing to change it, um, because pressure from below, I think, just isn't enough in Russia. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I remind you that Angus's book is for sale outside, uh, so if you'd like him to sign it, he would be happy to do so, and sign it here, so bring it back, and I'm sure you'd like to join me in thanking him for a most fascinating talk.